Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, everybody. It's Liam. This week's episode of Die Hard on a Blank is about the film The Last Boy Scout, which if you've seen it, you know it has some explicit language. And we quote it explicitly particularly at the very start of this episode. So if you happen to be around someone and you don't want them to hear that language, now would be the time to press pause and come back and listen at another time. Either way, we hope you enjoy this week's episode on the late, great Tony Scott's film, The Last Boy Scout. Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, One action movie at a time. Today's film is The Last Boy Scout. It's Die Hard in an L.A. Noir. I could not be more excited to discuss this movie. I'm Philip Gawthorne, and with me is my co-host... Liam Billingham, but he's asshole, and I'm fuckface. Yeah, We would have to cut that out. I don't know how that's going to go over. But before we we start, I do need to ask something that is a little bit more serious, which is to do just a sort of security concern, because... Did any of you stupid shits bother to frisk this? Fuck! <laughs> Do you guys have four hours? Because I think I think Strap that's where in, we're baby. I am so pumped for this movie. Oh boy, uh, Phil. Do you like the last? <laughs> it's okay. Do you like Last Boy Scout? Um, I think this movie is like I, I unapologetically love this movie. Yeah. There are don't get me wrong. There are problems with it. The main, let's just get this off the table. This is a rampantly misogynistic movie. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay. Let's just that's dealt with. That's right, it not is, great. It is. Okay? It is at times hard to watch. It's it's really really bad. That's that aside. I absolutely love this film. I think it's I think it's genuinely an amazing confluence. A sort of in the best possible way a kind of collision, a crash of, you know, all of these iconic figures that we're, we're talking about. Joel right. Silver, Shane Black, Bruce Willis, Tony Scott, like pa- all of these pa- legends, pause, 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 you pause. know. The GOAT, Tony Scott. Don't get me, actually what? do get me started. Do get me started because I could talk about him like indefinitely. Is there any more, He's such a hero to me. For me personally, I in, in a weird almost um, tangential way, tangential way, there's probably few filmmakers that matter more to my like historical love of film than Tony Scott because, well, we can get into it, but just like starting with Top Gun and, you know, uh, uh, Top Gun, uh, this film a little later, but like the fact that he directed True Romance, which is like, you know, a really important pivotal movie if you're like I coming of age in the Tarantino sans and then like uh, Crimson Tide, like just he's always been there uh, in some sense just in a just a just a god and and during the pandemic i went on a bit of a tear and i watched like some of the later stuff stuff i hadn't seen since it came out i watched his taking of pelham 123 for the first time which, which i, I think love rocks. i think it's, it's awesome it's really really good the and that, the original is a classic sort of my dad and i movie and um the remake is sick i mean yeah, it's really, really i love good. both movies yeah yeah tony scott means more to me probably than any of the any other filmmaker there's a number of reasons why one he was a working class lad from the north of England who like didn't have any um, 
lineage, didn't have any connections, just him and Ridley did it through sheer force of will and talent. And he's made, the best thing I can say maybe about, you know, there's a million things I could say, but he's made more movies I love than any other filmmaker. Mm -hmm. There's probably 15 to 18 films. And not most filmmakers, you know, what, five, maybe that you're like, I absolutely love this movie, yeah. maybe maybe ten, mm-hmm. you know, for for someone that's been around for a, like Ridley, someone that's been around for forty odd. Well, Ridley years, Scott is also the most prolific know? human being alive as a filmmaker. But, film. but it's not amazing. many, not many directors actually make enough films for you to love that many films. Yeah. But with the exception of one or two, mm-hmm. I love everything Tony has ever done, and I think he's he is a true artist. People yeah. think of him, uh, you know, and and he, you know, in the in the eighties. You know the vibe and, and the, around Tony was like a, you know more oh it's commercial you know it's yeah like, I was gonna say he kind of was always the, the little brother to Ridley Scott like Ridley know? Scott made art and Tony Scott look made at, like look at action Tony's pictures. first movie The Hunger right and uh, there's a there's a guy who I want to talk about a little bit uh, called Larry Taylor who wrote a great book about Tony called Filmmaker on Fire. And he's also just done one about McTiernan that's, um, that I'm reading right now. Is this your your brother? Are you guys related? I, no, I, no, I've got nothing at stake here other than the fact that I just think he, he's he's written uh, two great. No, I, I only bring books. it up because it's just it's completely it's so in, in my, your wheelhouse. So in my, yeah. Your dad's so Joel wheelhouse. Silver, and this guy's your brother. <laughs> but one of the things that he identified uh, in his book about uh, Tony is um, he went between. He would do say this first film was The Hunger, which is a very artistic movie. Um, oh, beautiful movie! Bowie I saw it. Catherine last Deneuve movie I saw before the it's pandemic. A, it's an artistic millimeter. vampire mm-hmm. movie. Um, Susan Sarandon, really, really interesting. Um, but night and day to his next movie, Top Gun, right, which is super slick and commercial and a studio picture and yada yada. But what's interesting that Larry Taylor identified in his book is that Tony would move between. Um, these very, like, he would do these strange, esoteric, very dark, very painterly artistic movies in between the blockbuster, you know, commercial films. Like, he would often, he would, movies like Revenge with Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah, No Way Out. Movies like um, uh, The Fan, which I absolutely love. No one, se- no, no one seems to agree with me on that, or not many people do. I, uh, again, and not in an, any kind of ironic way, I think I think the fan is, is kind of a what masterpiece. What is it about Tony Scott that you that, that appeals to you so much? I, as I say, I think he has this artistic, painterly, he well, was a painter. a painter, a painterly approach to action in terms mm-hmm. of his list, like the beauty of the images, the beauty of the colors. Um, he has an incredible uh, sense of pacing. He has an incredible eye for casting. Think mm-hmm. about like Jack Black in his small part in Enemy of the State that like lump. Oh my off god! The oh yeah. You know he often god, has Enemy of the um, State. Yeah. small people who have small parts in, and they go on to another things I love about the Scott brothers is that they would have actors in small parts in one movie, and then in the next movie they get a little bigger part, and then they get a little bigger part, and they right. kind of reward their the people that have worked. Uh, for them before it's like a family. and stuff. I lo- yeah, I love that. There really is. And that's the sense I get about the, the company as well. And I've got to know um, his assistant a little bit over the last few years who's told me some amazing stories about Man on Fire in particular and the shooting in Mexico when they shot the movie down there and this crazy stories. Crazy stories, yeah. So he, to me, th- there's so many, there's so many reasons why um, I, uh, gosh, you know, I I just love his work so much. And 
I don't. I, he's he's just so entertaining. But there's everything he's done is is entertaining or interesting or visually like dazzling in some way. But the other thing that I think is really not uh, spoken about enough about Tony is there's moments in his movies that are so humanistic mm-hmm. that in this movie's a little bit um, darker. It's a bit more nihilistic. But there's he has a real <laughs> a little bit. He has a real deft touch for these delicate human moments. There's a mm. moment that always, I don't know why it makes me choke up in Deja Vu, where, uh, uh, is it um, the Bruce, De- is it Bruce, the, the, what's the name? Bruce of the Greenwood. Character? Bruce Greenwood's character, who is like the, Great a, actor. A, I think he's the FBI mm-hmm. head or whatever. And Val Kilmer has bumped into Denzel Washington while he's investigating the, the terrorist attack that kickstarts the movie. And they're discussing, like, should we bring him into this sort of secret operation that we're doing? And they review his resume and he's like, he's kind of a loner and he sort of does his own thing and this is his reputation. And there's just a moment where Bruce Greenwood says to Kilmer, do you like him? And Kilmer goes, yeah. And it's just like those kind of moments that to me are are like... That's such an unusual moment. He has a real gift for that. There's some moments like that in Unstoppable that he he are so moving to me. Yeah. This is so I I don't know. Well, Unstoppable. Unstoppable actually I only encountered during the pandemic. It was part of my Tony Scott deep dive. And I was like, wow. Particularly the first I think it's a great movie, but particularly the first 45 minutes of Unstoppable. I'm like, this is a perfect setup. This movie is perfect for the first 45 minutes. And it's it's partially my love of like sort of setup more than resolution as like so i like watching all the gears you know get going in a movie literally in that movie but um i i just think it's a it's amazing and i i think you mentioned deja vu and that was another rewatch i saw that in the theater and i remember i think this happened with a few tony scott movies there was this kind of like oh yeah sure like those that was good you know i think some people we're just kind of like, oh, yeah, Tony Scott's up to his old tricks again, which wasn't necessarily bad. And now I think people are like, wow, this guy invented a visual language that yeah. like he really is. You know, there's a lot of writing on the Internet about, you know, sort of film writers about like the the way v- images have changed with digital cinematography. And it's it always dwells on you know, rightfully so, people like David Lynch and Michael Mann, who really, really are pivotal to like, you know, films like Public Enemies or the Inland Empire, like sort of uh, rethinking kind of how we shoot with with visual aesthetics. And I think Tony Scott has played a pivotal role in that. He sort of like helped invent music videos in some ways in the way cuttings and commercials. And and I just think, and I think Deja Vu's, you know, it's not the movie we're talking about, but it has a really interesting impact in terms of like looking at screens and the way that we think about things i just think he 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 he's like a bit of a genius in that i think he uses technology and storytelling in this very avant-garde way imagistically i think domino is an example of a movie that kind of like pissed people off imagistically when it came out and now feels like oh yeah that's what we were revving up for in in our era and he would take kind of crazy risks like that and that because i think he was you know people don't realize that the man was an artist right you know not just an a commercial tour de force filmmaker right you know he really was an artist and he would push the envelope and as you're saying he, he like push the medium forward you know so in so many ways and i think now people looking back and kind of realizing like what a gift he was to the world and to to filmmaking honestly i could i could really get emotional about it because because uh i got to know his assistant who's now a a big exec at uh scott free and you know well it's also tragic a wonderful man right and there's something tragic about what happened to him and i mean 
it's the, the the amazing thing is we have this legacy of absolutely amazing cinema, and I think, I think, look, let let's just talk about a, a absolute and also an absolute bruiser of a movie here. Yeah. Should yeah. I should I give us some Need fast facts? It's okay. Should I give us some fast? Hey hey, that's what we're here for. Should I give you some fast facts on the last Boy Scout? Please do. Okay. And then we can maybe talk about your, do you like Shane Black? What are your feelings about him? <laughs> the last Boy Scout was released by Warner Brothers in the United States on December 13th, 1991. Just a few scant months, less than two, um, uh, from our last film, which was Ricochet. It was directed by Tony Scott and produced by Joel Silver and Michael Levy. Again, who produced, did he produce Ricochet? Yes. Wow. So it's and wow. Die Hard they, too. These guys Is had it? a busy yep. 90, 91. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> it stars Bruce Willis, Damon Wayans, and Chelsea Field. The screenplay is by Shane Black, based on a story by Shane Black and Greg Hicks. It was made on an estimated budget of $43 million and a grossed $114.5 million at the box office. Regarding the screenplay, Mm -hmm. This is like one of the biggest screenplay sales in, in at least that history. It was sold right. for like what? 1.75 million at the end, but it actually had a higher offer, I believe from, I think it was from Carolco that he didn't take because he wanted to work for, with Joel and, and Warner Brothers again, because he had a good experience on That's on what, that's the, about the level I'm And then they were close, you know? Uh, him and, him and, him and Silver, yeah. Yeah, and that's sort of the numbers that I'm fielding for this Still podcast right yeah. now. That's what I'm trying to, you know, I'm getting this up to 1.8 million dollars. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do right I mean, now. It's, Give it's me pretty amazing. And we can talk about the screenplay, which which I read uh, this week, and I'm I'm pretty familiar with. But what was your what's your personal history with this movie? So, I grew up with action movies as a kid, right? And I had a cousin, uh, I think it was my cousin Chris or Craig, who one day was like, "Hey Liam, come here." This was like a family Thanksgiving or something. He's like, "I want to show you the first scene of the last of Last oh, Boy Scout." And he showed it to me, and. Uh, We'll get into the, la the the first scene of Last Boy Scout because I think it's the greatest thing uh, Tony Scott ever directed. Absolute barnstormer of an opening scene of a movie. Talk about and a it grabber. scared the shit out of me. Yeah. And I think I never saw the rest of the movie until only like five or six years ago. And now I've seen it two or three times. You know, I have a really strong relationship with Tony Scott and obviously Joel Silver and, and Bruce Willis, a lot of the people in this movie, but this one is like a later in life discovery. And uh, I mean, like you said, I love it. It's so watchable. And uh, there's so many incredible things about it. Um, you know, similar to our last film, Ricochet, though in entirely a different way, there's some icky things that you have to contend with yeah. when you watch this movie. But um, in terms of like gloriously nihilistic dirtbag action cinema with some real, I would say, interesting thematic and historical ideas Massively. about Los Massively. Angeles yeah. uh, is pretty incredible. You know, you said earlier it's Die Hard in L.A. Noir. Yeah. And I really, really am excited to unpack that. But we should say, this is a little different from our Die Hard on the Blank formula. So, Phil, it is. real quick. It, it is. Real quick. What's yeah. the Die Hard on a Blank formula? Okay. So, okay. um. <laughs> Feels like, I'm getting awfully tired of being asked this question on this podcast. For, yes, for the uninitiated, um, Die Hard on a Blank is the cultural or industry shorthand for any movie that utilizes this particular uh, storytelling paradigm of bad guys oh. take over a blank 
uh, bus, boat, oil rig. Right. Yeah, we, should, we should come up with something really wacky for what it, what it, what it could uh, be. Cruise line. Uh, bouncy castle. Bouncy castle. Um, <laughs> my daughter would love that. Circus. Um, and it's up to one. Democratic know, National Convention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's up to one man or woman to, uh, to save the day. Um, this movie does not fall into that category from a story design perspective. And typically, like, you know, just a quick sidebar on this, because it's an L.A. noir. It's also a it's also a buddy movie. Now, for the What's most What's a buddy part, movie? So, buddy well, cop movie. And this isn't buddy cop Actually, per se. Actually, it's not a buddy it's cop off, movie. It's, off, it's often kind of, um, you know, uh, folded into that into that category. But, you know, buddy movies are usually two mismatched individuals who don't get along at first, but have to team up for a, a common goal, often what's, solving a case. What's the best one? What's uh, the best? Okay, podcast cancel. <laughs> no, I think the the sort of diehard corollary Obviously, to this le is Lethal, lethal Weapon and 48, 48 hours. hours that precedes it. Um, both Joel Silver movies. Tango and Cash. Tango and Cash. Gawthorn and Billingham. <laughs> Fuck face and asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's the subtitle. So, so um, yeah, now they, they're, they're not the same um, formula usually. They're, they usually take place over a longer period of time, several days or weeks, as opposed to the compressed timeline that's usually the case with a diehard on a mm, blank scenario. They usually take place over multiple locations as opposed to being focused around a single location like a skyscraper, boat, bus, plane, what have you. Um, but we bouncy had house. to uh, bouncy castle. But we had to make um, we had to make uh, an exception. I mean, this is on a case by case basis. Yeah. But in in this instance, we had to make a special exception because there is just too much diehard die DNA, DNA to ignore. It's a it's got big diehard vibes. It certainly does. I mean, obviously, you know, the most obvious one being, of course, Bruce Willis. So let's talk about the diehard DNA. So, yes, we have uh, Mr. Willis returning to, again to play a detective. Um, I'll, I'll be a private detective. Uh, With one instance. of the greatest introductions in action movie history. Yeah. Sleeping in a car, except that he pulls a gun on a bunch of kids. But yeah. but that is the glor gl the gleefully bad taste from which this movie was, was made. <laughs> Um, so yes, in addition to Bruce Willis, we also have Joel Silver, of course, um, and that means that we have many of the usual suspects uh, on his payroll back, including composer Michael Kamen, costume designer Marilyn Vance, uh, stunt coordinator slash second unit director Charles Picurney, who interestingly, interestingly, I realized on my last viewing of Die Hard, appears as the guy driving <laughs> uh, Dwayne T. Robinson in the car. Oh, really? And he did he did Roadhouse, and he's like the the stunt guru. Uh, yeah, I recognize the name. Stuff. It's yeah. fun now to watch. By the way, I mean to tell you, I'm watching these movies now, and I see names. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. You kind oh. of dial into this. Yeah, weird you you frequency. sort of get into the Joel Silververse. Yeah. yeah. Um, also has an appearance by king of comedy cameos, Rick Ducumen, as the cool owner. Blown away, baby! <laughs> Another good name for this movie is yeah. Blown Away, because everybody gets blown away in this movie. So, yeah, Rick Ducumen plays the, the guy who's, like, chilling at his house when the car crashes into his pool. Now, we previously saw him in Die Hard as the, the city worker. City who, worker. Who's the guy who's, like, Robert Dabb is trying to make him turn off the power. I can do um, it from here. I have the controller, right? right, right yeah, right, that, guy. that guy. He's hilarious. He's in Groundhog Days, in Hunt for Red October, as the guy telling the puke story. He pops up a lot, always really funny. It's written by Shane Black, who has a peripheral but critical connection to Die Hard. Um, Which is what? Well, the do you know what Black's original title was for this script? Die Hard. Yes. Did he know that? Like, did he? So basically, he was working, he'd been working on this script 
for a while. Yeah. He's obviously tight with Joel Silver. They'd done Lethal Weapon together, and he was... Oh, um, you mean the greatest uh, buddy cop movie of all time? Yeah, no, so, yeah, of course. I was. No, a, you're I'm, right. It, might be, it, might, be, it might be Lethal Weapon 2. I'm I'm a big three guy actually. Three is I love three. three they're I really do. They are all good. Yeah, yeah. They are all good. Um, so various shades of good, but they are all good. Yeah, they're all they're all they're all great. Um, Lethal weapon. So he, <laughs> it's not what we're doing. <laughs> um, so so um, yes, basically. So Shane Black is working uh, working on this script that at the time is called Die Hard, which and uh, uh, about this character, and it, that is mentioned to Joel Joel Silver at some point, and he asked him if he could use the title for the Bruce Willis skyscraper action movie he was doing, and Shane agreed. I kind of forgot about that. So he retitled it. Which I think is also an amazing title. Last Boy Scout the is Last an amazing Boy Scout. title. What, there's so much in that. Yeah. That, to, that speaks to the this theme of heroism. Right. You know, in, in a there broken, are no heroes left, in a broken world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a line from Lethal Weapon. Yeah. You know, it's it's an it's a recurring obsession, I think, in Black's work is the the nature of heroism and analyzing it in in you know, in a world where heroes are, are scarce. Well, and also masculinity, I think is an interesting yes. theme of Joel Silver's totally. work. Um now, yes, lots to talk about here. There lots are. to talk about this movie. I think we should just jump right in to our anatomy of an action okay. movie. Okay. Now, the anatomy of the action movie are the categories that we use, that Phil invented. They are the five tenets, we live in a twilight world, uh, of which we used to define an action movie. And Phil has given the film Die Hard, A+, full marks, uh, extra credit, uh, gold star, whatever you want to call it. He's given that film all the awards. So we are going to seek to compare that f this film, which is a lot in common with Die yep. Hard, to that film. Phil, will you tell us the five tenets of the anatomy six, of an action actually. movie? Yeah, oh, I'm yeah, so six. sorry, yeah, yeah. six. Why do I always so do that? It's five would be better because it's a nicer number. Yeah, I have an occasional <laughs> seventh, but I don't yeah. know if it works with yeah, this not, movie. Yeah, not so much for this one. Let, let's hear him. All right, so there is the premise, uh, the plot or conceit of the movie, the ticking clock, um, the the story engine that gives, uh, gives the events urgency, uh, the hero or heroes, heroes in this case, uh, the villain or villains in this case, um, the action, i.e. set pieces, stunts, uh, memorable sequences. And a little maybe um, the filmmaking. Can yeah. Talk about that yeah, a little bit there. The filmmaking craft. Uh, and uh, finally, the humor, which this film has in abundance. So this is going to be pretty Sometimes high scoring, I would say. Choke on the jokes, but it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, what, that's well put. Um, so, okay. Should we start with the premise? Let's start with the premise. Okay. So. Last Boy Scout, the premise of this movie is that two fallen heroes team up to investigate the murder of an exotic dancer and unearth a massive labyrinthine conspiracy involving a corrupt U.S. senator and a villainous football team owner. So that's the kind of super um, top line summary. But where this story goes is it's quite a serpentine investigation. It has a lot of uh, At times on borderline incomprehensible until it sums itself up, which that's I think is a the way, great That's often the way with black stuff, I think, that especially, I would say, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, oh, where it's almost, good un, movie. Un, un, it's almost impossible to tell what the plot is. Or the nice guys. But it doesn't even matter because yeah. the, the repartee is so is so fun and yeah. the movie is so fun. I think that was, it's almost like, because I, you know, from my sense of Shane Black is someone that just, 
has devoured and absorbed, you know, pulp fiction, paperback, detective novels. Yeah. To the Man point after that my it's own so heart. second nature yeah. to him. And he loves these tortured plots. And so, you know, you're a big L.A. noir guy, right? This is... This I'm is, just a big noir guy. Yeah, I love a noir. noir love general. a noir. Okay. So, so tell me about that. Well, I think... What's a noir for those who don't know? Um, so a noir is a... Noir is uh, French for black, right? It's the... And Shane Black. Mm. Is that his real name? No reason to believe it isn't. Yeah, and I'm just curious because it's coincidental. Kind of, yeah, that is And uh, they sort of emerged in the post-war period. Um, this is very simple. Uh, where uh, often it's attributed to GIs coming back from the war, having witnessed the horrors that they had seen in that period. Um, and sort of a new strain of fiction emerges, a new strain of writing, which is um, usually there's a protagonist, uh, often a police officer, or I think much more accurately, private detective, someone who is not affiliated with the state apparatus, um, setting out to solve some kind of mystery. And often that will involve some uh, powerful figures, uh, often maybe a U.S. senator or maybe a mob boss, or maybe in the case of like Dashiell Hammett's uh, the Continental Op books, uh, sort of the figures in a town. And it's often, often the protagonist is somewhere between various power structures or, or figures that exist. Uh, it can be as small as in the case of Maltese Falcon, Sam Spade, who is the protagonist of that, is dealing with these, it's this sort of ruthless antiques buyer and his sidekick. Um, and there's always a femme fatale, meaning a woman who has a vested interest in what's going on, who often seduces and causes the protagonist to fall in love with her before pulling the rug out from under his eyes and reinforcing what is often a cynical worldview that the protagonist holds both at the beginning and at the end of the story. Um, that was kind of an off-the-cuff summation of what That's a noir pretty, is. pretty darn good. Um, a, uh, an L.A. noir is a little different because noir is often associated with darkness, you know, New York has some great noirs. That's a great, you know, like that's a town that I would think of as a noir kind of place. Um, but a, an L.A. noir is characterized, I think, by the sun, by the fact that it takes place not in the dark light of a like a northern cold city, but like in the sort of bruising heat of L.A. Um, you know, a couple noirs that a couple broad noirs that I would consider watching is there's the Maltese Falcon, which is one of my favorite films of all time, directed by John Huston, who I'm jumping around a little bit here, but made documentary films during World War II and that experience changed him. Um, that's a great example. Uh, I think Night Moves, the Gene Hackman film yeah, in the 70s is a great week, film yeah. noir. Uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie we've talked about on this podcast, but I think for film people, the quintessential L.A. noir is Chinatown, which is a 1970s film about Jack Nicholson playing. Oh, how you feel about The Last Boy Scout is how I feel. And I think a lot of people feel well, about Chinatown. I think they're definitely, it owes a lot to Chinatown, so, and that's, this movie. And right? so that I want to get into that. So very briefly, Chinatown is about a private detective named J.J. Giddies who gets hired to take photos of a man by his wife who believes he's having an affair. And the man he's taking pictures of is named Hollis Mulray. And Hollis Mulray is the chief engineer at Water and Power in L.A. And if you know anything about the history of L.A., you know that the history of Southern California and is the history of water in this country. And it 
basically over the course of the film, J.J. Giddes becomes embroiled in sort of a scheme related to water before the movie takes a very, I would say, disturbing turn into being about family and almost Oedipal mm-hmm. levels of, of, of psycho-terror for, for family. And before ending in a very tragic way, uh, it's an amazing movie. I think one of the great, the 70s is probably the high watermark for American cinema in many people's opinion. And this, along with some of the more obvious, you know, yeah, films the long like could, uh, the long goodbye, as long well, goodbye, that time, the, right? the uh, Robert Altman film with Philip Marlowe. I love character. that movie. Yeah, there's just a lot of great film noirs that emerged post-war. I mean, that's the era. And then there's Kiss Me Deadly from the 50s. A lot of really great movies and a lot of great books. A lot so of great Last books. Boy Scout is in this tradition. In and this tradition. Built on that foundation. And I think the best place to start is the first scene of this movie. What? So I just went on a little bit of a rant. But will you describe the first, let's say, sequence of The Last Boy Scout? Sure. So basically, um, we are well. Actually, the movie begins with a sequence that I, I did want to talk about, which is the credit sequence. Yeah. And I cannot tell if that is satirical or not. It's Paul Verhoeven-esque so, again. There's so a silver I, I, element. It's basically uh, so. It's Bill Medley from the Righteous Brothers doing a quite a tacky pop song that's Friday night's it's a like great m- night for football. Phil actually has an album out where he just covers that eight times <laughs> in different styles. It hasn't sold anything yet, but I'm hopeful the title I'll turns soon. I'll buy a copy. <laughs> um, so it's a very it's a very sort of tacky razzmatazz, Americana, uh, you know, um, that's another thing I really find interesting about Tony's work is the way that he shoots Americana with the outsider's eye that yes. makes it glamorous and really does the same thing with like how he can make t- the telephone poles of Oklahoma look like the most beautiful beautiful and interesting place because as Brits, we have the outside. We look at America through a, a slightly slightly different lens. Um, so there's this weird kind of sequence. I think it's satirical. I, I'd like to think so because funnily enough, if you watch um, Sunday Night Football on NBC, it's not a million miles away from the intro to it. Well, there's like, like cheerleaders all night for... <laughs> and electric guitars. <laughs> yeah. Like kind of depending, like Americana yeah, in all its, its glory and mediocrity it's, it's, and tack. It's America. Yeah. It's America. And there's nothing more large. American. American yeah. than football, American right, football, right. which is what. And the... this is sort of about that. That that's why it's interesting. I think you know you have this British director sort of, and to some extent, skewering or looking at this world from the outside. So we have basically the film begins with this very glamorous, sort of glossy, uh, fun. Uh, pop song that's uh, celebrating football. It's like and Monday Night Football, but right. this, the Monday Night Football. Are you ready for some football? But it's and everybody night. up, and then it cuts to the complete opposite, which is pouring rain. Cleveland yeah. smash cut, uh, super dark, very noir, very noirish yeah. uh, lighting in this scene. Very, very almost German expressionism. It's like, hard to. Well, it's just so know, dark. It, 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 you can barely see what's going on, and it, it's hell. Right. It goes from this is what we're selling you, and then the reality is it's hell, right? And it's it's war and it's blood sport, and basically there's this awful you know battle going on and uh, on the field, and then we meet a character called Billy Cole who is the star running back for the LA, the fictitious LA Stallions football team. And he gets a call from a character, we don't know who this is yet, but we'll later know it's an amazing character called Milo, played by Taylor Negron, who's on the phone. And he tells him, you need, isn't it, like, you need to run a certain amount of yards today or you need to score a certain amount yeah. of touchdowns. And the implication being there's some, it's to do with gambling and spread betting. And, but we're not, we're not totally sure what's going on, but he's putting a lot of pressure on him. In the script, it's more overt that it's like he won't, he'll cut off his pill supply and he's on drugs and uh, things like this. And they're manipulating him for, for gambling purposes and he has to run a certain amount of yards and things mm-hmm. like that. So 
Uh, and he's clearly pushing this guy to the brink. And Billy Cole goes onto the field, pulls out the gun and shoots uh, three like defensive tackles or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever they are. And gets to gets into the end zone, takes gets off his on helmet, one knee. Sa- gets on one knee, says, ain't life a bitch, and then shoots himself in the head. That's the beginning of this movie. So I wanted to bring great i think this is in some ways the greatest scene tony scott has ever directed i think it's astonishing i just think it's so well made and the reason i think it is so well made is because there's some things going on in this sequence that are almost exactly like chinatown but soaking wet Mm. which when you think about water is so fascinating because chinatown's about who takes water and this film opens with maybe the wettest sequence in all of movie history but you have this setup where we sort of see a victim, Billy um, Billy Cole, Billy Cole of this like larger conspiracy. We sort of watch this like play against the backdrop of this like thing that Americans all love, but they're all miserable watching in this moment because right. they have their umbrellas, umbrellas out. Yeah. And on the edge of this, but really at the center, is Shelley Marconi, played mm-hmm. by Noble Willingham, who is very similar to the. John Huston character in right. Chinatown. Noah Cross. A, right? Noah Cross. Yeah. Very good pull. A rich, sofe- successful, sophisticated psychopath who only wants money and power. And a is, white suit and all, right? right? White like, suit. Kind of. Su- yeah. Hey, I'm just an unassuming yeah. character. And he's pulling the strings. Mm-hmm. And the movie is setting up this like much larger tragedy. And it's so LA because, you know, I only moved here a few years ago. But I, 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 every time I drive past a water and power building, I kind of have this like oof, moment because I, as, I love L.A., but I associate it so much because of movies like this with power broker ideas and like who's in charge and like there's something going on behind the surface in, in every interaction in L.A. It's all about power. It's about who controls the water. It's about who controls power. And in this case, it's about who controls like the greatest... American it's national the distraction, the distraction for the masses, right? Yeah, it, it, the in opiate, a way, right? You know, um, the in the way this of is football. like. And speaking of great seventies movies, almost like it's instead of like Rollerball, for example. Of yeah, like, this is what we use to distract the masses while we're stealing from them. In, and you know, look, you however you feel, you can love football or not. Like football, it doesn't really matter. But a lot of if some people make a lot of money off of football on the fact that every Sunday people sit down and they watch four games of football, right? Well, I, there's a few things I wanted to you say love about football. I, I lo- absolutely love football, but and I want to I want to talk about that for a second. But what I also wanted to say to your point about LA and how this is such a, a specifically LA story, I discovered a piece of interesting family history. Uh, you know, and I'm from you know I'm from the north of England. I never, didn't think I had any kind of connections, but we, you know when you go down these rabbit holes of genealogy, like we're doing for the show, funnily enough, I discovered that I had an ancestor not too far distant who was called William Gawthorne, who worked on the viaduct. He was an Irish immigrant and worked on the viaduct here in Los Angeles during the Mulholland era. And it gave me this weird feeling of like, wow, I have some kind of um, connection to the the foundations of the city in an odd way. And it made Mm -hmm. me feel like I was on the right track in life. But it's interesting that... um, uh, but yeah, but this is weird dichotomy with Los Angeles, and as you're saying, with the, with the LA noir of it all, which is it's bright, it's beautiful, it's seductive, but it's built on a crime. 
right? It's built on violence and crime and to some extent almost kind of genocide because of what the the, the stories around Mulholland and the flooding and all yeah. of this stuff is crazy. That's also a, an extension of the American story. Well, the manifest destiny you know? exactly. of, of Westbrook expansion. Exactly. So, no, so yeah. There's a lot of deep roots to noir and how they're, it's a uniquely American genre. Yeah. You know? And, and also, I think you hit on something in the head, which is the history of America is the history of uh, genocide and trauma, right? And that's true of many countries in the world, but it's... Yeah, Britain's it's, not exempt from that either, by the way. I'm not, I'm no, not claiming no. any kind of moral authority. Of course. And there's there's a cultural reckoning going on with these issues. And I think what I love about film noir is that in an often entertaining package, that shit is right there on the surface, right? Like, it's it's just part of the thing. And, and I think the kind of paranoia and fear that is engendered in stories like this is is so central and and the mass distraction of like oh look at this look right. over here look over, don't look at don't look at the people building the stadiums taking cash taking you know cash bribes to for, to make the process happen don't look at the football look right. at the football and like i'm not suggesting that that these things aren't fun like that's the craziness of entertainment is that you know it's it's all about money on well, some level. So what I think is interesting about this movie, and why I think it's worth just taking a moment to talk about L.A. Noir, and this is also sort of neo-noir, where two things right. are, are often uh, kind of the same thing. There was a lovely line in Larry Taylor's book about Tony Scott that called the world of this movie a casual dystopia. And I thought that was so, oh, that's so such good. a wonderful turn, turn of what? phrase. Tell me more. Well, it's it, it just, it, this is a world where um, politics are completely corrupt as embodied by the senator... Um, Calvin Baynard, played by Chelsea Ross. He's so good. Um, the police are inept. Yeah. Um, the streets are lined with hitmen. Yeah. Um, and um, there's no morality essentially. Yeah. And it, it, I just thought that was a really great that that to me speaks to the, the you know the the noir uh, the mood of a noir where essentially you can't trust the police, you can't trust government, you can't trust your senators, you can't trust. Um, the the sort of structural institutions that are supposed to help the citizenship. You're basically on your own in a well, moral yeah. vacuum, especially you know? when you consider that it's it's a it's a it's a response to World War II, where like traditional notions of of a whole bunch of things in society collapsed under the weight of horrible horrible violence, right, and mm -hmm. genocide. So it's it's all it's all its worldview is comes from the most extreme piece of history. So and what this film does though is take the these traditions of noir. And these traditions of serpentine detective stories, but they they give it an adrenaline boost by making it this hip, violent, action-packed, foul-mouthed, buddy action movie, right? And and that's an interesting intersection of you know of the, some of the elements that are at play with La with Last Boy Scout. There's a lot of substance in under the surface in this movie. That's yeah. not to say that the the movie is superficial, but like. That's my the thing I love the most about this movie beyond like it being just a banger of a movie to watch is um there's there's really it's really aspiring for something that I'm not sure a lot of action movies are aspiring for. You know, a film like Die Hard, which is the, you know, a great movie. Die Hard is 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 about things. It's about you know, it's a, we've talked about how it's a little bit about class. It's yep. it's about being an individual. It's about uh, there's a little bit of distrust in that movie of authority there's that there is in this. In there there's a critique of, of yeah, yeah. there's there, it's about the excess of the. I think it's a critique of sort of gung ho state power, yep. right? You know, at it at its worst. Send in the car, you know. Send in the car, and the the FBI, the amoral FBI agents. It's about the media. It's yeah. it's about a lot of different things. It's about the excess of the '80s. It's about you know all these sort of uh, kind of 
issues and things. We and think kind of about- an LA gold rush as well with like the Nakatomi mm-hmm. well Corporation, said. you know, and, and the that clamoring for money and greed. And well, what make, are the, what's the yeah. price of that? We make know? the joke about like follow like the eight episode series about what happens to Nakatomi yeah, Co. Yeah. after the film. But like that's, it's an interesting question, you know? But I, in some way, as much as Die Hard is about those things, Die Hard is really about a man trapped in a building. Mm-hmm. And I think that last Boy Scout is has enough space in it for the themes to really emerge as as part of the story like and partially because it takes the villain in the film is a corrupt team owner and a corrupt politician right it's really about the history of LA it's really about the powerful and the powerless like uh you you know who holds our, power our, and our heroes have have no power you know and the villains have all the power yeah but i want to critique that a little bit okay. because Yes, this movie is about power dynamics, but it's also on an individual level who holds power in any given scene. And I think that that relates really, really closely to Bruce Willis's relationship with his daughter in certain mm. scenes of the movie, Bruce Willis's relationship with his wife. Bruce, like, there are individual moments. The, the, the scene between the incompetent police officer and his, like, only maybe decent character in the yeah. movie, his uh, underling. Like, yeah. I think that this movie critiques power in a multitude of ways, especially as like, especially about men in some ways. You know, you mentioned earlier that the movie might be misogynistic, but I think it, I think there's a lot to be gleaned from like Bruce Willis's relationship with his daughter, which I think is really, really interesting. Well, I was sort of wanted to go back a little earlier and talk about what, you know, when we're introduced to, we have the scene with Billy Cole that's somewhat out of context. It's this grabber of a scene. We meet Joe Hallenbeck, who is a, a drunk, slobby, private detective and then he gets a phone call from his buddy mike and about a job and we're just like he's just you know he's a kind of a deadbeat goes to his home and then we meet his wife and i think this is one of the best scenes of all time when joe hallenbeck played by bruce willis goes home and his wife is his wife is uh um his wife sarah is in is in her robe in the morning and is a little skittish, and uh, he's not supposed to be home. They're kind yet. of arguing. He's supposed to be in They've Vegas. They've clearly got a bad marriage, right? It's clearly no. Kind it of seems quite... great. Everything's going great. <laughs> it seems it's pretty. It's clearly quite strange. They don't trust each other. You know? She thinks he has. She thinks he like went to Vegas to gamble. To gamble. He's like, but I love know. when he goes. No, I was there on a skip trace. Right. And then he kind of pauses, and then he goes fifty, 50 bucks. bucks. <laughs> With a cigarette in his mouth, and then you know Bruce Willis is walking around the apartment takes just no we, we don't something. know what's going on really and then he just says out of nowhere very casually so who's the guy in the closet and what what plays out is this amazing scene of save big on your memorial day barbecue all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. These are the things that I love to teach in in screenwriting or that I uh, advocate for, which is have a scene do more than one thing. This is a scene Mm -hmm. that is suspense tension there's a narrative enigma there there it, it's relational we mm-hmm. understand that it's doing so many things in sh- such a short uh space of time and basically he says uh you know she she denies she's like what are you talking about and he says uh oh that's right sometimes you forget i'm a de- i'm a detective 
and pieces together. Okay, there's steam in the shower, but your hair isn't wet. There's a, the toilet seat is up. There's no one under the bed. I'm guessing that when you heard my key hit the lock a day early, you stuffed him in the closet. So who is it? And uh, and we, you know, we think maybe he is crazy, and she's saying you're crazy. She's kind of gaslighting him, right? Yeah. You know, like you're you're you, you should call your shrink, show. call your shrink, Joe. You're fucking. And of course, actually, he's he's completely right. correct. Mike's in the closet, and old Bruce McGill sheepishly. Bruce McGill. The closet. Bruce McGill's in a lot of good movies. He is. The Insider. He's that's his best. I think that's it's his amazing. best. Amazing. You can have rights or left. He's in like two so scenes of that, that movie. He's, yeah, he's unbelievable he's in it. Um we've jumped a little bit ahead to the hero, which is yeah, okay. Kind, yeah, kind kind of, but I, it was just yeah, the, the, I just think that scene is worth spending a moment on because it's just one I think almost that's those are the kind of scenes that when they're in a script, these are why people buy scripts. The, the, to it, read them, you mean, or to, to why people buy uh, a, to a scene a that good that yeah. early is like this is an amazingly How clever was... scene about a sort of stock situation that's reinvented. How old was Shane Black when he sold this script? He's, he was, uh, he was, I think it was a recent UCLA grad oh when God. he sold Lethal Weapon. I think it was like twenty four. Oh my God! Yeah. Um, at the end of that scene, Mike leaves the house and he starts his car and he explodes. Now, here's a question for you: mm -hmm. How often, when you're walking down the street? I'm really serious about okay. this. Do you walk past a car as it's starting and go, hope that car doesn't explode? Like, I think watching too many action movies growing up, every time I'm near a car that starts, I'm like, ooh, hope that car doesn't explode. It's a weird thing. Because this movie, how many cars explode in the- I don't know. There's a lot. There's at least two. Most, must be more. There's multiple car multiple explosions. Multiple car explosions. Multiple uh, being shot dead in front of your car. Uh, yeah, helicopter, stuff like vehicular that. Vehicular mayhem. We've talked about the premise, which is the first tenant of the anatomy of an action movie. Let's talk about the ticking clock, which is the second one. And it's kind of like the plot device that that keeps the story moving. You know, action movies need forward momentum. And often there's a, a an artificial MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. uh, a bus can't drop below 50 miles per hour. Or uh, there's a, a bomb in a briefcase. Yes. So this is an interesting... Uh, it plays with the ticking clock device in an interesting way. Very simple. And the simple version of this is that the ticking clock really kicks in in the third act. The, this serpentine investigation has pulled in all of these different characters that are piecing together what is essentially a uh, a blackmail um, plot. The Halle Berry character, who is Jimmy Dix, uh, Damon Wayans' character, we haven't even got into those, but basically... We're 47 this, minutes this, and we barely <laughs> said the name Damon Wayans. This, the, 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 Halle Damon, Berry's, it's not you, it's Halle, Berry, Halle Berry's character, Corey, who is Jimmy Dix, the, the, the Damon Wayans character's girlfriend, is suddenly murdered. And that is the catalyst for the investigation. And we realize that she is trying to blackmail... The, the character that you mentioned, Shelley Marcone, who's the owner of the LA Stallions. The power and the to, powerless. Who's powerful? Right. She's, she's, powerless. she's powerless. He's powerful. She's trying, and she's trying to co use blackmail because she's unearthed a plot between an alliance between uh, Marcone and this senator. They're trying to they're trying to legalize sports gambling. We'll come we'll come to and understand. get kickbacks essentially. And um, uh, so that that's kind of where the, where the story is taken, and they're kind of piece, piecing that together and trying to get the bad guys. What ends up happening with the ticking clock is it really kicks in in the third act when Joe and Jimmy realize that a briefcase filled with explosives is heading to the LA Coliseum, and the bomb is going to kill Senator. Uh, Baynard, as well as countless innocent people at the stadium. One of the things that I think is so genius, though, about this premise uh, and where the story goes can be defined in this one line of dialogue where Jimmy Dick says to Joe, 
I figure you've got to be the dumbest guy in the world. You're trying to save the life of the guy who ruined your career and avenge the death of the guy who fucked your wife. <laughs> I mean, that is Shane Black. Like, well, that's also film noir. You know, it's like nihilistic. It's so, but it's so great because it's like doing the right thing is the is the hardest thing to do. Now, Joe's daughter, uh, Darian, played by Danielle Harris, has also been captured by the bad guys. So there is some personal uh, stakes at play and there are innocent people involved. But that was just such a, uh, the, 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 the sort of uh, the irony of that uh, well, is wonderful. And what I think is important is that we've, we've, we've quoted this amazing line from the film. But now we should talk about our heroes yes, and yes. what is exactly going on. So this film we're jumping has, around a little bit. Jump but is yeah, fine. Yeah. This film has two heroes: Joe mm -hmm. Hallenbach, played by Bruce Willis, the good, the good, the great, the greatest. Bruce one Willis. of his best performances, one of his best, maybe characters. his second greatest creation. I would say certainly so. And actually, in some ways, I think this is bit more of a stretch for him than McLean. I, I would say McLean, which he is obviously amazing in Die Hard, yeah. right? But I don't feel like it's, uh, and there's some scenes in particular, like we talked about, like his speech with Al Powell on the phone when he thinks he's going to die, where there's real heavy lifting acting going oh, he's on. so good in that. But I don't necessarily feel like it, it's as hard for him to do that character because I feel like it's quite connected to his own persona and that's, mm -hmm. why, it, that's why it's transcendent. I feel what's interesting about this character is it feels like quite different. And almost, it's almost like a Robert Mitchum type character. Oh, interesting. You know? It's almost some of this so grizzled and old and he's not that old when he's playing. He's no, but they early make him, 40s. He's like my he age. acts as if he's like 60. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, well, he's a he's a he's a private detective in a film noir. He has right. to be an alcoholic. He's gonna give himself lung cancer. He smokes in every goddamn scene yep. in this movie, except well, no, he's even at the end when he's got a polo yeah, yeah. shirt even on. Even when he's he still sorted smoking. out, he's still yeah, he's still, uh, oh, he's still puffing away. Yeah, he's really and and there's shades of what will follow in Die Hard with a Vengeance in this in this performance, and that he's just given up, right? Yeah. And he's, we should say he plays an ex Secret Service agent who once saved the president of the United States. From gunfire, but also slapped a senator who was beating up a woman in a hotel room, and that senator is Boehner, the man mm -hmm. whose life he has to save, which is what Damon Waitzens is explicitly referencing earlier in the film. So I think this is is significant because the Secret Service are ulti the ultimate patriots. Their, their job is to defend the office of the presidency, not the occupant, right? They are democracy's last line of defense. And, mm -hmm. and I've, I've actually gotten to know a few people in that world recently. You know, I've, they're, they're really, their worldview is really extraordinary and, and almost um, just the, the sense of, the sense of heroism that's casual to them, but to people like, you know, the regular Joes look, looking at them and what they're <laughs> the about. Regular, regular Joes. Joes like me, you know, regular schmucks like me looking at these incredible People that, that heroism is sort of come naturally to them. And you couldn't get a more heroic profession in a way than someone who mm -hmm. is an, an ex-secret service agent who are literally willing to take a bullet and die in defense of democracy, in defense of someone you may not even like, actually, mm -hmm. um, because of what it means. And that's what jo that's Joe Hallenbeck's uh, backstory. So I think that's very significant. This is someone who was a hero, who uh, but fallen doing, hero now, doing, and doing yeah, and and doing the right thing, standing up and you know punching the senator who is sort of sexually abusing this this woman in the hotel room. Ugh. costs him everything. Um, so He stands up for what he believes in. Right. Which, by the way, is a very uh, American idea. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an everywhere idea, but there's, there's a lot of American values are defined by standing up for what you believe in. Yeah. So so that's Joe. And then we have Jimmy Dix. Before we go further, I, Phil, I want to just disagree with one thing you said there. You said you're a regular schmuck. I actually think you're a pretty extraordinary schmuck. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Liam. I don't know if that's good or bad, but... <laughs> well, considering the antagonism of the uh, characters of this movie, I just feel like we should keep it going, yeah. fuckface. Okay. 
All right. Fine Speaking asshole. of Jimmy Dix. Yes, Jimmy Dix, played by Damon Wayans, who I think's great in film this movie. debut. Um, well, he was in. He had a, a memorable cameo in Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, that's right. Um, as the uh, take the banana guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a, his his performance in this film is controversial. I, I spoke with a few people who are like, "Oh, he's so grating in this movie," but like, you know, it's a star turn. He's, I think he's, he's great. He's, in it. He, I'll tell you this: I think he's perfectly up to the sort of slightly obnoxious character that he has to play in. One the of movie. the things I think is interesting as well about Damon Wayans, Damon Wayans in in this movie is, on paper, this is a totally obnoxious, unlikable character. We meet him Correct. within yeah. a, within a few. So he's a he's an ex he's the superstar quarterback for the LA Stallions eighty nine ninety they say. So he had a two year run, uh, had the best arm in the league. Um, so you know was was this sort of uh, rising star. Then he got kicked out um, on because of gambling charges or gambling allegations and allegations of of drug abuse. And now he's sort of like. Peripherally Loading. hanging around the team. Seems and, to have enough money to you know, kind of like exist. And and it's yeah, and he pays still, Halle Berry's rent right, in the film. And and he has six hundred and fifty dollar pants, as we find out we find out yeah, later. Yeah, I, I would spend more on pants personally, <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, he's he's so he's a he's a you know, he's a cokehead, right? Yeah. He's um he's a he's a drug addict. He cheats on his girlfriend. Um, he, that's how we meet him. I think he's like slept with his, his girlfriend is Halle Berry in 1991 and oh, yeah, he's he cheating cheats on her, on her and he like goes to the bar that she works at and she doesn't know he cheats on her, right? No, no and, of and he's not. borderline alcoholic and even says I nail anything with a heartbeat. And it's like, this is a, on paper, this is a loathsome character yet somehow Damon Wayans to me makes him sympathetic and you actually like like him. Well, you know? I think part of what this movie is about is these guys looking for redemption, like totally. a chance at 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 coming back to their previous stature, right? And and you know what's interesting is that it, actually at the end of the film neither goes to do what they aspire to do necessarily. I mean, it's not like at the end of the film Bruce Willis becomes a, uh, a secret service agent again or Damon Wayans becomes a star football player. They actually come together. It's almost coming to peace with the circumstances that you're in right. rather than chasing the past glory. Well, they become essentially Hallenbach and Dicks, two yeah. private detectives, which, by the way, uh, oh, I would watch that TV show. Uh, absolutely. I've, I've been trying to make it happen. <laughs> and I actually, when I was a kid, I actually I had a handwritten uh, treatment for Last Boy oh Scout God. 2. Oh, my God. You know, it, it's set The up very the, Last Boy it's Scout. It's set up for the sequel. I yeah. want to see those two guys do a detective agency. Absolutely. And, you know, they have a classic antagonistic relationship. They don't like each other. By the end of the film, they they are partners and, and have respect for one another. And that's sort of earned over the course of the film with some nice asides and moments where, like, there's a moment where Damon Wayans is, like, watching. He's surveilling the senator's house, right? And he goes, what would Joe do? Mm. He'd shoot the guys and say "fuck you" or whatever yeah. it is. Smoke like, some cigarettes. They, you sort of see them start to become close uh, and mirror each other. There's one scene though that I, I really want to point to. You mentioned earlier, like this is about the power and the powerless. Or and and I think one thing that the that Shane Black does that he doesn't shy away from is the hypocrisy in Hallenbeck's character because there's a scene where he's in Hallen where Dix is in Hallenbeck's house. Mm -hmm. He spends some time with his daughter. He's kind of endeared himself to Hallenbeck mm -hmm. in this moment. Uh, Dix goes in the bathroom and Hallenbeck comes in and Dix is doing cocaine mm -hmm. and Hallenbeck throws him out. And it leads to this sort of impassioned monologue from Dix about how like, I got screwed. I got screwed by the NFL. I think he's great in that scene Yeah, he well. really, like you get this uh, real picture into how he feels in that moment. And Bruce Willis is still like, get the fuck out of here. Mm -hmm. And like, 
in that moment, I hated Hallenbach. I was like, you're an alcoholic. Like, you can't yeah. keep your life together. Right. And you're given, like, who are you to judge? You're such a hip- hip- yeah, hypocrite, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, like, you know, it might say something about the film and its period and its relationship towards drugs, but I'm sorry. Like, you're booze. You're, like, literally on your third tequila. Who are you right. to judge? Ch- not- chain smoking. Yeah. You know, it's like borderline alcoholic, if not straight out al- alcoholic. Yeah. But I guess it's the par- it's the parental thing. I think that's yeah. what it's going. Is that there is a yeah. line drawn in concrete, right? You're not going to have cocaine around my 13 year old daughter, right? 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 Is. Right? You know. So yes, but there is a hypocrisy. I think. I think. And well, again, true. it comes. There's a scene before that where Bruce Willis is kind of arguing with Darian, his daughter. She's watching Lethal Weapon on yes. the TV, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a great super sort of meta, super meta, a little too meta. You're, yeah. It kind of pulls you out. You go like, oh, it's, it's like Lethal Weapon. Um, though I think Helen Back and Riggs have quite a bit in common, but. There's, again, that's a scene where I kind of look at it and I'm like, I don't know that, that we're supposed to be like, yeah, Willis is right. Like, he's an asshole to his daughter. Like They're, he, they're he, not, they don't, they, they don't shy away from showing the flaws of both right. characters. Well, and he's kind of a neutered figure. He has no power in his house because he's an asshole who's his kind of disconnected from his life. Yeah. His wife doesn't respect him. And the movie's insistence upon like, you have to respect me, I'm your dad, almost feels like self-aware. And it's like, why would anyone respect you? Yeah. You suck. But again, there's no heroes anymore. Like this is a thematic right. idea. And that she the movie used plays to, with. and that's it because he has the flashback where oh, I love that moment where uh, she's drawn the picture, and it's like it's you, Daddy, and it, it's him standing in front of the American flag yeah, after yeah, he yeah. Was, after he'd saved the president's life, and now she's drawing Satan claws. And look, I don't you know, know if everything has fallen. Claws, everything right. you know, it's it's almost like biblical. Yeah, like, Satan claws is pretty world, cool though. You know? same, same, yeah, casual, fallen angels, casual dystopia. You know? yeah. And look, I don't know if the movie is necessarily commenting on the idea of like his role as the father or, or the, as you pointed out, the misogyny in this movie. But like, it's just hard. Maybe, maybe this is hindsight, but it's hard to like respect this character at times in the movie. And I, I don't ding the movie for that. I like that. Mm. I like an unlike, I, I like an occasionally or often very unlikable protagonist, you know, but Bruce about, Willis offsets it because he, yes. he can play a character that's a, kind of an asshole. I mean, McLean is kind of an asshole. Right when we first meet, a little bit. Yeah, but he's like, situationally so at a weakness that you kind of feel for him. You kind of want, but, but, but yes, he's a but, shit. He's shitty to his. Not every act in both cases. I think it says a lot. These are two uh, potentially unlikable characters that are empathetic. Yes. because of the actors who play. Well, them. and they rise to the occasion and the challenge. Yeah, the and it's yeah, as you say, it's a redemption story. And the other thing I think that's important about their relationship that's worth noting, a la Lethal Weapon, is that although there's a, a generational, attitudinal, and economic difference between these two guys the racial difference is never commented upon and is is never a factor and it's totally irrelevant to their relationship as it should be and i think that's the like that that's yeah. that's cool at a time where because a lot of the politics of this film how you know especially with the sexual politics are have age have not aged well at all but i think that that's something that i think is cool about both this and lethal weapon well, is I, it's irrelevant there as feels it, as though there's a casual well we, lethal weapon is interesting because in i think in the well the second and third lethal weapons obviously deal with race in a much more candid right, way, yes, which I yeah, think is yeah, great. Yeah, I think yeah. that's actually one of my favorite things about particularly the Weapon 3 is that it acknowledges LA at the time and the violence that was going on and like doesn't shy away from it. And it's, you know, if this movie got three sequels, maybe there would be a different take on it. But yeah, there's like, there's like, there's no like, it feels as though their relationship is just rooted in their kind of like odd couple antagonisms, yeah. you know? You don't even think Dix about it. Dix is flashy. You know? He's yeah. arrogant. He's, uh, you know, kind of obnoxious. He's petulant. He's a little brother. Helen Back is kind of like, I wouldn't say he's, I wouldn't say he's arrogant. He's hypocritical, but he's also like street smart. Mm-hmm. He's a bit of a bruiser. He can read a situation. Again, 
Bruce Willis plays the best detectives. Yeah. He's such a smart and he's the guy you always underestimate. And everyone underestimates him in he's this film. He's the king and of he underestimation. He uses that to his advantage in situations like the scene where the guy's going to kill him in the alley and he, he acts as if he's really drunk and he makes him laugh by telling these your, your wife is so fat jokes. He literally uses the fact that everyone thinks he's just a bum and a deadbeat to his advantage and to gain uh, the upper hand at times. Yes. Uh, and also the scene where he has uh, Darian's bear and he blows away four guys yeah. doing the, the silly groundhog voice or whatever that is. Furry Tom. Very quickly, uh, nobody drinks whiskey like Bruce Willis drinks whiskey also. He just has this, you're kind of like, yep, that's how that this guy, he just puts it down. He's like, let's go again. You, you totally, know? but there's not a false note, I think, in his in his yeah. performance. He's, I love this character. Yeah, I mean, and it really is amazing Bruce Willis. He plays, playing... Um, Characters that have had the shit kicked out of them by life, yeah. Bruce Willis is amazing at that. Well, there's a lot of moments where he gets punched and he's like, "You oh, hit he takes me again, so and I'll, much I'll kill punishment. you." And then he takes another punch, yeah. and like he kind of there's that scene in the pool when he when the two sort of shitty late '80s, early '90s henchmen are like holding him down, and, and he hits one, one hits him, and he's like, "Do it again." And then he does it again. And then he breaks the guy's neck. It's, dev it's, ugh, it's brutal. It's a gross movie. Should we? While we're on that, should we talk about the villains? Hey, let's talk about the villains. Let's start with your. Let's talk about your first one last. Okay. If you don't mind. Yeah. You're like, oh, what do you? What have you done? So, I want to start with the three uh, three sidekicks here. Mister Scrabble. Okay. Which one is Mister Scrabble? So Mister Scrabble is the um, a prize Roger Dangerfield of the situation here, and and the guy who's like uh, he says. Um, Perhaps we can dispense with the fun and games now, yes? He's played by an actor called Jack Keller, who right. was, or Keller, I don't know how you say his name, it's K-E-H-L-E-R. Lovely, lovely actor who is memorable for his little part in Big Lebowski as uh, the, the landlord for the dude. Yeah, And he's of like course. doing bad yeah. LA theater and stuff, yeah. oh, and, but he's really like sweet. Talk about a good LA noir. That sure. is an yeah, amazing yeah, a LA great noir. Example. Totally. D does something really interesting with it. Um, so there's him, there's Chet, who you were just talking Whose about, played gets by broken. the great Kim Coates. When else is Bamba, Kim Coates? baby! <laughs> See, I love, a, I love a maniacal laugh. You do. I, I love a henchman doing maniacal Phil, laughter. When, when, Phil, for, heaven, for Phil, heaven will be flying around in a helicopter <laughs> yeah. and doing Dude, maniacal yes, laughter. Yes, it really would. Yeah, that's, it really that's would. what it's going to be. You know me be. so well. I do. This is Valhalla. Mm -hmm. um, what other films is Kim Coates in? One of the ones that I, he's done so much work. He had a great part in Entourage as a, um, a, a suicidal coked up producer wow. who was down on his look. The one of the movies I remember him from really well was Black Hawk Down. Oh, good movie. Which is also, Brother. also yeah. kind of, kind of a diehard type scenario. Actually, di yeah. That, di that, movie. that movie is, I saw that, uh, the weekend a it opened it, and, and I was like, mm -hmm. Dev I was completely devastated by it. I couldn't come so he's, my mind. He's, he's been in tons and tons of things. And then Pablo, played by Frank Collison, as well as the other the other guy in that scene in the pool house. Who's kind of so, just a shit-eating grin on his face. I just want to slap him in yeah, the face. Really irritating. Then we uh, have Mi we have Milo. Milo, you're just throwing that away. We have Milo. Like, roll Phillip. out the fucking red car. Philip, you disappoint me. Let's talk about Milo. Right. Has Are you got a Milo guy? <laughs> okay, here's what I'll say. Milo is the greatest henchman in the history of cinema. Boom. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you think so? Oh, yeah. Wow. I, now, don't get me wrong. Mr. Joshua. Mr. Joshua's in the Hall of Fame, right? Or no, Carl. He's in the Henchman Hall of Carl Fame. I'm sorry, Carl and Joshua. The they're all in the Henchman Hall Way of Fame. Way above this guy. Carl, Joshua, no. No, no. For me, it's, it's Milo all day. 
Like they don't coming have, soon. Milo all day a podcast. They don't have the lines that uh, Milo has. Okay. Yeah. okay, like Gary, Bu it's pure just like actor charisma and ferocity for both of those guys. And you t you made a wonderful case for Gurenoff and why he's so amazing in Die yeah. Hard, and he absolutely is. But we don't really know. Well, much he's about a strong his silent type. Yeah, right? yeah. That's what the actor brings to the to and the role. Busey brings okay. this like like discipline. What but do this we know about Joshua? Yeah, nothing. It's just pure Buse Busey's ferocity that makes right. that character. Interesting. Goddamn Christmas! You know? And the, the scene with the lighter. and, and But the, you don't know anything about that. I, I couldn't really say one line that he uh, that he says. It's goddamn Christmas after he shoots the TV. It's one of the funniest moments in that movie. I, I, but he's unhinged. But, but his, basically his personality character is to be disciplined and then unhinged. Milo has like so much going going for him, okay. right? Like talk about some. He doesn't even enter the movie apart from that phone call until like forty-five an hour right in. Now, yeah, you know. I actually think that's a deficit in the movie. I wish he came in earlier. Uh, yeah, because he's just he, he's absolutely amazing. Well, and I want more. In I think one of my issues is there's not enough antagonism between him and uh, Helen. But every scene that they're in is just so electric, mm -hmm. and you know this. What an introduction for a character, right? So the door, the you know, it, it was sort of halfway through the story, um, and suddenly the door opens and and. Joe Hallenbeck is like shot with a taser in the chest. And <laughs> morning, Joseph. Yeah. <laughs> and then. He's a psycho. <laughs> yeah. Hannibal Lecter vibes sometimes oh, from he's this guy. So, he, he's so amazing. He's also very stylish. Pulls off red pants, which mm -hmm. is pretty hard uh, I'm to wearing do. orange you're pants. Doing, you're doing it today. It's very, it's very JFK. Milo inspired. Um, but, you know, he's he's very stylish. And, and he he's just, his line delivery is amazing. And what I think is so cool about that is Taylor Negron, the actor playing Milo, was a stand-up comic. And I think that, you know, stand-ups, if they're really good, are mastered their cadence to the point that they can make you laugh even when they're not saying something funny. Yes. Right? So I think that elevates Ooh. this character. Well said. Know? So they, it's just that they're so in command of their linguistic skills and their intonation that they can elevate. But fortunately, not. so you have an actor that has incredible dialogue. He's visually really interesting. His way, and also his sort of casuality where it's like, Take Chet's corpse out of here and fix Hallenbeck a drink. You know, fix Mr. Hallenbeck a drink. He ha he's at times he's quite chill. He's a psychopath. He's a <laughs> you sociopath. Know, you know. Sociopath. No, I mean, you're absolutely I, right. So I'm. I, I think Milo is the top top henchman ever for me. Well, speaking of top, the reason that I wanted to go in the order that we did is I wanted this to reflect what I think like is interesting about the noir power structure of this movie, which is the bad guy is always the rich guy, right? The, the, in a noir especially. <laughs> but it, we get finally to Shelley Marcone, played by Noble Willingham. Mm -hmm. And what I love, love, love about this guy, he's actually my, in some ways my favorite part of the movie. I'm not as crazy about Milo as you. I like him, but I think that there's, if I have a critique of this movie that I love, it's that I wish it leaned into its film noirness like a little bit. I think there's like a, and I, again, none of this is said like I don't enjoy the movie or I don't like the movie or I don't think the movie is astonishingly well made or whatever. Phil's so angry. He's turning red. He's so mad at me. But I think that the movie is this interesting, and maybe this is what makes it work for you, and that and this is great. It's this weird dichotomy between an L.A. film noir and like, just a nasty, violent action movie. Yeah. And I, I think it works really, really well. But sometimes I wanted more of the grand conspiracy and I wanted a little bit more of the kind of like uh, power structure who's pulling the strings in this movie. Well, it's interesting that the conspiracy in this movie is so, is so clever and so believable that it's actually happened in real life. Gambling is now legal. 
Yeah. Right. In sports, which was it was only what Nevada and Atlantic City, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's funny because in the UK, um, gambling is such a we. It's so uh, embroidered into our lives. There's it's constant. I mean, I've seen it creep up. Right. Yeah. Like when I was a, when I was a kid, there's literally in the UK there's bookmakers everywhere as just like chain stores yeah. right you go I think a lot of the world take a flutter on the horses or, or but that or whatever. might suggest something about American puritanical thinking or values yeah, maybe, a yeah. Bit. but but now, but in the last few years in the UK I've noticed now on the TV it, it's basically every time you turn on the TV the commercials are gamble 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 why haven't you gambled every Premier League football team is sponsored tons of them are sponsored by international gambling companies and now here in America in the NFL and I I'm I love. Do you the, gamble? I don't, okay. and partly, partly, perhaps because I am weirdly puritanical about the game of football. Uh, I, oh, uh, as wow. in, as in the the, the NFL. Yeah. Um, in that, I love the sport so much that I don't want to. You don't pollute it. I don't want to taint it. Not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not here preaching about gambling. I'm just saying for but me. For your for me, personal. For me personally, I don't. Also, I have enough stress and tension in my life without worrying if the Cowboys lose by three points, I'm going to lose two hundred dollars. I don't need that kind of stress. I just. Sure. I just truly. I genuinely love the game. But this film hates football. You know, to some extent, and as it well regards it as well uh, said a blood. And as you know, of a. a, a, a Dystopic blood as well sport. as it should. I think that 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 is you know that is a great perspective on the sport from from what this movie is trying to do. Also, it's fair to say that not to pull punches because I think maybe the people who made this movie also hate football. But um, Fillmore hates most things. Yeah. Fillmore is built upon. Well, there's nothing pure, right? In those in the world of noir, right. right. Occasionally, really, or... you know, you'll have something pure, but it's. I mean, well, maybe, Chinatown yeah. is ruined. I mean. China, I don't want to <laughs> spoilers for a fifty-year-old movie, but the sort of thing that you think might be pure in Chinatown ends up being the most perverse, mm -hmm. dis disgusting thing. Um, the reason I want to talk about Shelley Marconi last again is is that he's he's not a bruiser. He he sits and he schemes and he drinks a whiskey and he you know he's like a chubby dude who has all the power and is ferocious when he has to be when he shoots dicks in the is it the hands yeah, he shoots yeah, him in yeah. like his and he's a and dicks is a quarterback so right. it's significant and i just i like this is true with gruber and carl this is true with mr joshua and his superior in lethal weapon i forget his name but shelly marcone is the ultimate I'm just going to sit back and relax. Like, Shelley Marcone doesn't have to go look for the detonators. Right. Shelley Marcone gets to sit and print money and be the biggest piece of shit and, like, has everybody doing his bidding because they want what he already has. And that is, like, in terms of the annals of, of like, crappy, rich criminals in America, that guy is, like, the personification. And in some ways, he's, like, my favorite villain of any of these movies. Because to your point about how gambling is legal, this guy exists! Mm -hmm. There are people like this. Oh, yeah. And I just love how one of my favorite things is that he just runs away with the money. He thinks it's the money. It's the It's the bomb. And his his house blows up in the it's Hollywood really Hills. It's really interesting. I, that moment's really interesting because I think it's what six six million dollars. I think is yeah. the amount of money. Right. This guy owns a football team, and at one point he thought this money was destroyed, but he's still so Upset. greedy that six million dollars, which is like nothing to if you're talking yeah. about a multi billion dollar industry. That's a really good point. Right? It's like the one he, million he dollars in Doctor Evil. I mean, look, not, even not many people would be willing to just leave six million dollars on the table. But it's it's wonderful dramatic irony that his he gets uh, killed over his petty greed yeah. to, him, uh, to him undoes him 
you know, right. because that's probably like that's barely a salary for one of these, one of these, you know, one of these players. Yeah, right? it's, it's not. It's really not that significant for the economics of, of professional football, even in 1991. You know. Yeah, it's it's such a good point, and like, you know, it makes you think about like. Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood, yes. another another great movie about uh, corruption and like the the soul of L.A. being a uh, corrupt uh, yeah. luna the the intersection of business and religion. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he he's in a rich tradition of insane rich assholes. And you don't see football owners as villains like very. That, that's that was that's original. A good point. That's often they are yeah like uh, Noah Cross is like a water magnate or whatever yeah. he is or like property or politicians or businessmen. It's this is a unique well, and character quote, within unquote, the noir tradition. Cultured people, you know, everyone should go back and watch Chinatown. It's just this largesse. It's this way yeah. of living. It's this unencumbered. I don't give a shit about anybody. Well, so there is such a rarefied atmosphere above the hoi yeah. polloi in their in their minds. Yes, and right? I. This, they, they, yeah. Can just be as venal and you know. Awful and when as this they guy want. blows up, Damon Wayans and Bruce Willis laugh yeah. maniacally. And uh, this movie has uh, maybe similar to McLean. There's some class. There's some class antagonism going yep. on in this movie. There's a there's an awareness. Hallenbach is a workaday private detective. He has a job that literally basically doesn't exist anymore in yeah. that in that form. And Dix is like an out on his luck quarterback, right? Like they're kind of regular schmucks, and they're going up against a system that is massive and has shitty little dudes like Chet, Pablo, and Mr. Yeah. Scrabble all the way up to some multi-billionaire. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it's wild. And at the higher level, people people like Milo. W- should we just talk about the senator, Calvin Baynard, briefly? Because of course. Because he's other, other, other key uh, antagonist. Right. He's quite an interesting uh He's not character. in the film very much, but he's got a few scenes. He's, he is, uh, he, you know, it's sort of interesting. Again, he's like, uh, men of great power. He there's a scene where he's being interviewed and he's got the the smile mm-hmm. and I think there's a really really great choice in that scene. A really great choice, which is they finish shooting whatever and and the PA or whoever who's helping shoot this commercial goes like, "Oh, thank you so much." And he turns and goes, "Oh, yes, thank you." He's not shitty. I caught that too. He's I not antagonistic. He's like, "Yeah, you're welcome." Like That's he, how a politician would he be plays because the, it makes yeah. you like him and then you realize he's the worst one in yeah. some ways. Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, his true his true nature is ultimately exposed. But I did agree. I thought that that he, you know, the actor doesn't have a ton of space to uh, dimensionalize that. But character. he does so much. He with does, them. a he great does, actor. He's, he's um, great. Chelsea Ross. Chelsea Ross. What else is Chelsea Ross in? I know him well from my favorite sports movie of all time, Hoosiers, which is called <sighs> Best Shot in the UK. Hoosiers is a great movie. I, oh gosh, I could. I thought I was crying Min. earlier about Hack Tony Scott. Min. He's also in Major League, I believe. He's he is been in Major in a League. Bunch of oh, God, movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He just has the face of a late '80s shithouse and he yeah. does it really well great, great. actor yeah. um yeah i mean i i think that this movie comes alive for me in the power of dynamics and so the villains are one of my favorite things about the entire movie but you know what else is pretty good in this movie the action the action what i wanted to say about the action this isn't the most uh, bombastic of uh, certainly until the the big finale a lot of the action in this is relatively <laughs> grounded yeah right now, little shootouts. There's yeah. There's sort of flurries of of violence. There's the Corey's death, which is really really nasty. Yeah. She's sort of gunned down. Gangland we haven't style. talked much about Halle Berry. She makes a and very we, strong impression yeah, in a short amount of time. Amazing. In this movie. Leaps yeah. off the screen like so. You know, she's so she's so beautiful, obviously, but she's you know she's just got a grace and a. This she seems so above that world. She's a you movie know? star. In, yeah. Yeah. You Instant know? movie star. Yeah. Incredible. You know? 
Um, and Chelsea Field, we haven't so talked likeable. about. So likable. I've got quite a lot to say about, about Chelsea Field later. You have quite a lot to say about uh, an aspect of Last Boy Scout stuff. I know, hard to believe. So you also have the C4 explosion in the trunk of the car and the shootout in the woods with Furry Tom and then the freeway chase. And that action escalates. But So the action, it's, I wouldn't say there's anything like, the action is really solid and really sturdy mm. and muscular. Workman-like. Um, but there isn't necessarily, a, until the ending where there's some clever, the clever set pieces with throwing the ball to hit the to intercept the sniper's bullet and things that like that. That is so well shot. Very the way the ball hits, choreography. The, the gun goes off and the gun and the ball explodes. It's, it's brilliant. I watched it three times. I just kept rewinding yeah, br it. Br you know, brilliantly, uh, brilliant craftsmanship. But the there are mainly sudden bursts of violence. But there's an interesting thing that that this film adheres to. I don't know. Have you ever come across the term the whammo chart? No, but I'm, I, with I think I'm about to hear about it. You are. Give it to me, Phil. All right. So this is a rule that Joel Silver didn't create but uh, adopted, um, which basically posits that every movie should have a burst of action every ten to twelve minutes. Oh, I've heard it, but right? never called it called the whammo yeah, chart. That's one of the that's one of the terms for it, or sometimes called the ten minute rule or the twelve or the twelve minute rule. It, it needs an action beat uh every ten to twelve minutes. It's like minutes our impression chart. Every to, five to six minutes we have yeah. to do an impression from <laughs> by, a, an eighties action movie. By contractual law. Hey, my impressions are so every terrible. ten to twelve minutes. There's an action, and this yeah, movie adheres yeah, to that. Yeah, basically. So, so and, and the last one we did as well, Ricochet, is is similar in the sense the action isn't necessarily hugely, um, you know, memorable or like trailer moments per se. You know, yeah. like really, like oh, I haven't seen that image before. It's just you know, it's more sort of common or garden scenarios, an explosion, a shootout, a chase, what have you. But it's beautifully shot and it's re it's really cool. But isn't the move? The reason I love this movie isn't because of the action, even though the action is very strong. Yeah. Um, no, I think this movie is all the ambiance and the feeling and the vibes and, and just being in the, the milieu of it, right? Yeah, and, and, and the next point that I was going to make was largely why I love this movie is the humor, you know? Um, and this film, one of the points I wanted to make about it is even though this film is like, I think I would say has, is pretty hilarious, it's not an action comedy. It's not a ha-ha movie. It's not a, it's not a comedy and it's not an action comedy, even though it's a buddy cop movie. In the same way, Lethal Weapon is also very funny, but it's not an action comedy. In my opinion, how I would designate that is like uh, Rush Hour is an action comedy. Mm. Or, I like Rush uh, Hour. Ride Along is an action comedy. But it's more the em the emphasis is more on the comedy right. than it is on... Here, as you, you mentioned very... Um, articulately in another one of the shows where you were talking about how the, the comedy is natural to the situation. It's a human comedy. Right. It's, yeah, it, it, it's it's organic. Like right. To, well to the moment, to the characters. It isn't, it isn't the sort of Kevin Hart winking at the camera, somebody doing their, somebody that's like a comedy star plugged into an action scenario doing doing an extension of their shtick, yeah. essentially. Right. Right. You know, like the Chris Tucker, you know. The humor sticks in your mouth things. in this movie. Sometimes the humor, the things that are funny are also the most painful. By the way, no, no disrespect to either of those guys or anything. It's just I'm just making the point about the Dylan. Well, it's just it's it's this isn't a broad comedy. This right, is exactly. a it's an action movie that is funny. In it's just a different thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's absolutely. Not and and, and I would other. say that, that in some ways, like you don't get as many of these anymore. No, as you once did. Films that are genuinely funny and there are rated nasty, violence, kind of in a weird way, serious <gasps> movies that are also hilarious. Right, and, and they they walk that line. Brilliantly, you know, there's so many funny moments in. There. I mean, we're spoiled for for choice, and so there's the the leather pants discussion, the the bomb moment. That bit is hilarious. You know, where where they're trying to write the, the paper. I forgot to tell you, bomb means fuck yeah. you in Polish, which apparently it doesn't. Because nah, I asked I'm, my Polish yeah. uh, friend, and he said, "Was it was bullshit. it was it was your was your pal Jesse Ventura from Ricochet <laughs> Chowalski?" <laughs> Chowalski? <laughs> 
anyway. that, that, that whole bit where it's like, you know, he's trying to draw the picture of the of the bomb and he's like, it doesn't look like a bomb. It looks like That's an apple with lines weird, coming yeah, out of it. He's going to say, don't open the briefcase. It's full of fresh fruit. That's one of those weird moments where you're like, is he really dumb? Like is yeah. You, yeah yeah another thing but was that's a, that's kind of believable I think for sp- sports stars often aren't ne- you know they're, they're if you're on that uh, track early in life you don't necessarily have the same educational um, acumen uh, it's certainly true of Premier League football football players soccer right. players they don't they're, they're often it's not almost not their fault in a way because yeah. they're just don't this is your sole focus yeah now. no if that's an interesting a, if you're point a sports star. no that's a good point my um another thing this movie does with the humor that I, that relates to die hard is there's a lot of like oh you're the bad guy huh and oh you go you know find the nearest bad guy like there's a meta quality again one thing that that smart screenwriters do with bruce willis is they set him up in opposition to sylvester stallone and arnold schwarzenegger so in mm-hmm. die hard there's the like enough c4 to our orbit right. arnold schwarzenegger line like i like that they do that because bruce willis is much more of like a a non-superhero mm-hmm. he's a regular guy and i think the movie does some nice little bits with that or whatever the case mm-hmm. it's just smart about how it you know joe silver's uh, there's a meta quality to joe silver's work you know the ecu or the extended cinematic universe that you mentioned from ricochet last time or the fact that you know it's winky and maybe a little silly but like the fact that darian is watching lethal weapon in this movie like there's an acknowledgement of action movies in joel silver's there's movies. another weird one that I-, I meant to bring up when we did our die hard 2 episode but the- there's a little easter egg in that where you know how bonnie bedelia is on the plane and there's like an old the old there's the granny next to yeah. her who has the taser chekhov's taser she, she's, yeah yeah she's <laughs> she's flipping through a magazine and the magazine uh falls on a on an advert for lethal weapon 2 should we uh put on the tux let's do it you know what i'd like to rename the awards today to the last boy scout oscars today let's do let's it, do it. So out let's, of respect let me just put on my football jersey that i never got um wouldn't it be i would love to get a jimmy dicks uh, la stallion you jersey. you absolutely need to get I a need jimmy that. and i need to get up. A beard going that that uh, I need to get some uh, Bruce Willis scruff. That's so, what I need to get. <laughs> you're working. I say you're, you're pretty I, close. Yeah, I'm yeah. getting there. I just I dress too well. Unfortunately, I'm just too stylish. Uh, should we? Uh, let's do it. So the Die Hard Last Boy Scout Oscars, aka the Action Movie Awards. Yes. So our, and our first uh, our first category is would have is the John McClane Yippie Kaye Award for Best. Oh quit. God, are there 45? Uh, exactly. All which uh, ones haven't we said? Um, okay. All right. I've got, all right. I'm just, I'm just trying to break the ice. I like ice. Leave it the fuck alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, we're being beat up by the inventors of Scrabble. <laughs> that's a, that is that is an amazing, that's I wrote a that hell down. Of a, that's a I hell wrote of that a one down. Yeah, that's really good. Um, can I just do my favorite? Yeah. Can I do my favorite? All right. Uh, oh. Yes, officer. As a matter of fact, there is a problem. Apparently, there are too many bullets in this gun. Milo forever. That's like, a good that one. Is the best good fucking line in action movie history. That's man. a great line. And the best delivery of it. Yeah. That's what I'm saying about his He's stand so up comedian. Apparently, he puts the emphasis on apparently. So it seems so casual. That's good. And then all of a sudden just shoots the cop in the head. And I'm like, this character is incredible. That and is Taylor really Negron good. passed away a few years ago. And oh. I just want to, you know, just want to give him like. Uh, a, a little bit of love as well because I mean a lot of people love this this is not me doing anything innovative but I really do he done a bunch of great stuff he has a great part in Friends as like a restaurateur oh that's right he uh, does who he says he's Lebanese and I think he runs an Italian restaurant and they call him out for it and then he hires Monica and he's just he's just so funny yeah he's so funny and 
he's amazing in this. And when he wants to be vicious, like when he's pistol whipping Joe, yeah. like, and he says, touch me again and I'll kill you. And he does it anyway after he's already killed Chet. You're just like, man, this guy is so interesting. Yeah. He's so interesting. So the one other him. quip that I want to bring up that I think is good is when, um, <laughs> Dick says danger's my middle name and Helen Peck says mine is Clarence I Cornelius think, Cornelius that's what it is that's right that's very very good I think the winner is the it has to be that there's too many bullets in I think guns. it's the be- one of the best lines in action movies it's history, really good for, for real the Hans Gruber exceptional thief award for stealing the film alright so we, who are we, nominees? we touched on that earlier my nominees would be Chelsea Field as Sarah who I think does a lot with like a totally thankless pop yeah you know a, a, a pretty sort of ugly portrayal of a of a you know the cheating wife like again speaking to the rampant misogyny in, yeah. in the movie but i think she is really great with, with a character you can't, you can't yeah you you don't dislike her when you again you kind of maybe should based on her 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 actions but also arguably. he's you understand he's clearly he a piece of garbage yeah and being married to him must be a fucking nightmare i can't even imagine so you know if you're you're sleeping with uh you know old bruce mcgill uh, you know, you're sort of like weirdly, eh. She's, okay, Chelsea Field, I think that's a good pick. I, I put her in there. I put I re- Halle Berry I, as well. I really hate the scene in the movie where he says, fuck you, Sarah, like at the I, end. I, I do too. It's like I, really, it's, it, it doesn't, it, it works intellectually as a clever play yeah. on, a, a subversion of, of the, the sort of, the of romantic reconciliation. reconciliation. It, it, but it does, it's, ugly to watch it's ugly to it's watch just, it's the mean. first time i watched it i was like i this i really struggle it's with one, this it is the one bit where i'm like oh, i don't like i don't really like that also i don't know because chelsea field is so like appealing she's amazing in you this know, movie. She's, she's great great actress and i really, really uh, yeah big big fan of hers but um, and i but i think again it's you mentioned this with um ricochet the casting in these movies of the women the material may be beneath them in yeah. some sense, but they always they cast well, it. and they, they always it. they yeah. always make the character more empathetic, and they always feel they make them feel as though they have agency, and yeah. I think that that's you know, interestingly, just uh, the the original script, uh, the Shane Black script, uh, Sarah had a, a sort of bigger role, the, the Chelsea Field character, and ends up actually killing Milo at the end. Oh, I like that. But um, what they did with it was uh, they reshot the, the ending of this movie, right? Well, Bruce Willis. Uh, and I get where he was coming from was like the original story is about uh, Milo was actually his backstory was like he directs snuff films and that he, that's how you meet him and he's got mm-hmm. a chainsaw it's re- again talk about it's really really ugly stuff and Sarah is going to be in one of these snuff films at the end and it's a race against time to get to get her it's really really extreme and um, yeah, Bruce it's... Willis was like look I've just done two movies two diehard movies where it's all about me saving my wife I don't want to really do... I don't want that to be my motivation again. Mm. Is he a producer um, on this movie? He's not. No, he's not. But Shane but, Black is a, an EP, actually. But maybe a producer in... in Because the stories from this set is that yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of in, uh, uh, challenging behavior between Scott, Scott Willis, Silver, and, Willis. I mean, it's kind Black, of an alpha or, male... Yeah, totally. uh, yeah, and I know Wayans and Willis did not like each other. Apparently. From, Although Wayans, like, who knows? Who knows? Wayans since walked that back. Oh. But... Um, yeah, so I I have um, the other. Halle Berry. I have Halle Berry, who, as you say, I think is exceptional, magnetic. Yeah, you know, um, and just you know, so good in her. But it's such a shame she kind of dies so quickly in yeah. the film. But God, um, the, Halle Berry has the last laugh because she's made a revel- irrelevant and amazing movie star ever since. And an you know, Academy an, Award winner. Academy Award winner, amazing just actress. A truly, truly great actor. She's a she's she's truly good. I want to. Th- I think Halle Berry takes it. I want to n- mention Clarence Fielder. Who plays the uh, underling to the main to incompetent police detective in this film? Is he the one that Milo kills? 
Uh, yes, the one yeah. that Milo kills. I just think that guy has heart, and like I like yeah, when he shakes nice Bruce scene. Willis's yeah. hand. You know, if we're talking about this movie being about there being no heroes, like he kind of recognizes that's a big moment. He kind of goes like, "I just want to shake your hand." It is. You know? It, it kind of hits that moment because there isn't much sentimentality at all in this film, right? And as you say, with that moment with the "fuck you, Sarah" uh, speech, they they try and subvert sentimentality at every turn. But there's but a sentimental that, moment. But that them. is a lovely human moment yeah. where it's actually there are maybe still a few people around who respect the idea of heroism in these older values yeah but for, for me it is Taylor Negron as Milo oh. I have to say like, that he, he absolutely steals it couldn't he take the next one it's the Dick Thornburg award for Dick of the movie and our nominees are for me my nominees were Mike Matthews played by Bruce McGill mm. um, who pour one out with, for Bruce um, McGill yeah great actor um, Ali Thug as he's credited <laughs> Played by Bajar Jola, I the guy who, the guy who, the your your wife's so fat yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's he pops memorable, like he's really, definitely, really definitely. And Chet, played by Kim Coates, the the henchman who Bruce Willis kills by slamming his hand into his nose. And I think we got to give it to Ali Thug. What's the oh, actor's okay. name? Um, Bajar Jola, if I'm okay. saying it correctly. Yeah, he, I he apologize just, if I'm not. Bruce McGill is a little. It's like Bruce McGill. We know Bruce McGill's good. I, I, Kim Coates just makes me. He, Chet makes me angry. I hate him so much. But I, I mean, okay, wait. You know what? Actually, this is the dick of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's it's Chet. I take okay. it back. It's okay. Chet. Yeah, okay. I was sort of thinking against stealing. He really is a dick because it's such a sort of dick thing to do when he's like, he punches him. You know, pow, sort of powerless. It's like. So petty, yeah, you know, and mm -hmm. such, a, and yeah, it's 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 a yeah it's best a good death. I, I um, think we know what this is. Presented by Marco. No more table. Next time you have the chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. All right, okay. Sorry, um, I can't not. No, do no, it. I I give you the space. When Thank I you. say Marco, I step back. This is my therapy. Yeah, therapist. Doesn't it feel good? Yeah, it does. Doesn't it feel good? That's does. why I do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, my nominees are Chet being killed by a single punch. Marcone being That's brutal. It's horrible, Ooh. isn't it? It's really nasty. Marcone being blown up by his own bomb. In his mom, Mel, in his Hollywood Hills foot of Hollywood Foothills house. And Milo landing on the helicopter rotor blades. Yeah, it's Milo landing right. on the helicopter yeah, rotor blades. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Side note, as we mentioned uh, in the Ricochet episode, every single film that we've covered so far features a helicopter at some point, as it seemed seemingly was a Joel. Oh, Silver even Hunt for an October mandate. Does. Every single one. Um, up until possibly our, our, our next one. But again, this film ends in a high, you know, in a high tower situation above Los Angeles with a helicopter at play right. and a carrot, the main antagonist falling to their death, a la Die Hard. So all roads lead back. All right. Um, double Jeopardy quiz oh, trivia. Yeah, You're going to love this. Really You're going to love, love this. All right. Number one, which Heavyweight actor, known mostly for playing an iconic gangster on television, makes an uncredited appearance in this film as one of Shelley Marcone's goons. It's not James Gandolfini, is it? It is. James Gandolfini is in this movie? He is. Where? So he plays, he has a non-speaking role as one of the heavies. You can see him briefly in the scene where Jimmy Dix is thrown off the bridge. Okay. And you can also see him in the scene in the woods. But he has he has a heavy... Uh, heavy sort of beard wow. and stubble and he's wearing sunglasses oh. but if you put you can totally see it and it makes sense because he was in three subsequent Tony Scott films um, True Romance Crimson Tide and Taken a Pellet 1, 2, 3 so goddamn good in all of those movies Absolutely. oh man he is oh, what a great man. this is what I'm saying about the Scott brothers like and how they would you get find... a little emotional about yeah. James Gandolfini oh I know another yeah for sure like what a 
amazingly gifted. Big, uh, big actor, part of the pandemic for me was the Sopranos rewatch. Did you wobble, my little red? And he's so good. He's so, and he's so good in Crimson Tide. He's amazing in Crimson Tide. Yeah. I mean, he's good in everything. Don't get me wrong, but like that shit eating grin on his face when they're all pointing guns at each other and he's like into it in Crimson Tide. You're like, this guy sucks. He's, yeah. And he's obviously, uh, true romance. Unbelievable. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Fun fact. Question number two. Halle Berry was not Tony Scott's first choice to play the role of Corey. Can you guess which former Bond villainess he wanted to play Jimmy's girlfriend? And there is a clue available. If clue available. I think I know who it is, but I don't want the clue. She used to date Dolph Lundgren and appeared. Oh, it's Grace Jones. Yeah, and yeah. appeared in A View to a Kill. So I was going to ask you, is it the is it the woman from A View to a Kill? But yeah, yeah. wow, Grace Jones, uh, amazing, amazing, yeah. amazing uh, talent. So that's uh, interesting. That idea was nixed by the. What a cool! It might have been distracting. She's so famous and so iconic. It might have been distracting. Halle Berry is perfect. Yeah, at this, she at this point in his career. And speaking of Halle Berry, this is question number three. Before moving into the movies and becoming an Oscar-winning actress. One of Halle Berry's first roles was on the CBS soap opera Knots Landing, which diehard terrorist also became a regular on that soap. It's not um, Carl, is it? It's not. Do you want a clue? Yeah. He's probably your favorite terrorist. Marco? Yeah. What? <laughs> Marco was on Knots Landing. Sorry. So, so um, listen to this. So the actor's name was Lorenzo Cacciolanza. He appeared in 30 episodes of Knott's Landing between 1990 and 1993. Uh, and he was also a former professional goalkeeper and dated Jane Fonda for six oh, months in 1989. Oh, what an icon this guy is. Yeah, so your Marco boy Marco Cast? is like... <laughs> uh, Halle Berry was on the show for six episodes in 1991. So yeah, Wow. There you go. I, I did pretty well. That was good. Three out of three. I think that's perfect. That solid. That was solid. I did have to phone a friend a couple of times. Um, I don't know if we need to rate this movie except to say that it's a it's pretty much a banger. Yeah. It's pretty I much mean, a banger. Yeah, it's... I don't know what else I, I can say. I mean, I feel like I've, I've, you know, I've left it all on the field you, here. I truly... I lo look, this movie does have elements of it that are, uh, are uncomfortable in, you know... Uh, now right um we can't escape well and that. probably we're uncomfortable but, then but it's still an entertaining yes yeah, yeah, yeah. uncomfortable yeah. any yes you're quite right uncomfortable regardless of uh, you know of historical context and and social mores it's just those elements of it are, are are unpleasant but that aside i think the, the you know although it was like so uh destructive and difficult for all of these forces that you know that were so pow such powerful creative forces Bruce Willis yeah. Joel Silver Tony Scott Shane Black I'm feel like isn't the world blessed that that happened of course well and I think that this you know? is, yeah and it was hard for all involved but look what we got out of it you know I, I will take any action movie that aspires to be like a statement about history and LA and who's really like that will aspire to be something bigger than itself. And I think most movies do, by the way, I, I think that it's not fair to say they don't, but I think that this one hits on something that very, very few do. I think it's, it's really as much about its themes as it is about its story. And I think that's pretty amazing. And actually it's sort of, not that I had him lower in my estimation before, but it, it really amplifies, I think J Shane Black's just incredible talent. And that was, a, an that was the last thing that I, I sort of wanted to say, because I think this is what puts this over the top is is the script because it's a masterclass in plotting, characterization, and most of all, dialogue. Yeah. And and 
I, I teach Shane Black's stuff in, in this in this screenwriting class that I do occasionally. And by the way, if you're in, if you're ever interested in that, hit me up on Twitter and DM me and I'll give you the, give you the details. I do it occasionally. This hustle, the hustle um, is real on this podcast. But one of the things that one of the things I teach you about is not and this doesn't land in the movies, but it's actually on the page is his economy of words is absolutely mm, masterful. Interesting. There's a script that I uh, sometimes discuss that actually was unmade called Shadow Company, which was which was what was lethal weapon, weapon. Is referenced referenced because Shadow the Company, Shadow Company is but the, it's a different the, story. Yeah. And there's one line in it that I that I talk about, which says. There's a, it describes a fan moving in a hotel room and it says like not cooling anything, just redistributing the heat. And it's like, you're there. That's an amazing sentence. You're there. Yeah. And that's what Shane Black does on novels? the page. No, but his scripts feel that way. Mm. And they remind me of uh, a little bit of James Salas, who, who's the writer of Drive, uh, who I've been working with. And, and his genius is a con uh, how to do so much with as few words as possible, which is so perfect for hard-boiled noir crime fiction yeah definitely you know? and so, there's there's a lot i mean that's there's a little bit of mammoth in that there's a little there's certainly a little bit of michael mann in that you know and i think you know my final point of comparison is that i think there's more uh people rightfully so love michael mann i think increasingly people are starting to have the same feelings around tony scott and i just think it's probably at the end here a nice moment to say Rest in peace, Tony Scott. Just yes. one of the greats. You Who know, will come up again, but is one of the greats. It's dedicated to 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 you, to your memory, to right. your uh, incredible filmography, and his commentaries as well, which have, are the best film school you could ever wish for. Is buy Tony Scott's movies, listen to his commentaries. There's such an insight into his warmth, his 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 generosity of spirit. Here and his absolute filmmaking craft, dedication to research, attention to detail, love for actors, just everything that made him such a special human being. Would you want to be Tony Scott's son or Joel Silver's son? Have you thought about it? Well, that's kind of a, because I, I love my dad. So I don't, like, <laughs> yeah, your, da your dad introduced you to all these exactly. things. Exactly. So you know, um, um, I wouldn't want anyone other than my dad as much as I love uh, these, yeah. these folks. Right. If you've listened to all hour and four thirty something minutes of this podcast, you should rate, review, and subscribe it wherever you get your podcasts. Tell the biggest thing you can do: tell your dad because he probably likes these movies. Tell a friend. Let people know. Review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you do it. It does help the show grow and get higher up in the charts, more listens. People will see it. They'll go, ooh, what's this diehard on a blank? I want to listen to that. That's what we want. But the most important thing you can do is tell someone who loves action movies to listen to the show. Um, you can find us on Twitter. Phil, where are you on Twitter these days? I'm at Philip Gorthorn. You're lurking in the comments. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just sort of around skulking in the at the, mm. at the side. Like, you know, when people go to a, a party and there's people are awkwardly standing, they don't want to dance? That's yeah. me on Twitter. But they're getting very drunk. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it all works out. Yeah. Uh, at Philip Gawthorne. Yeah, just at Philip Gawthorne um, on, on Twitter, yeah. I am at Liam G. Billingham on Twitter. I'm also at uh, on Letterboxd, where I am cataloging each one of these films as we watch it and building a master list and least a list and linking to the films. You can leave comments there on the movies. You can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at our accounts or at, at DieHardOAB on Twitter, Instagram. You can email us your thoughts. We'd love to hear what you think of this movie. Um, DieHardOAB at gmail.com. Next time on the show. Next time we're doing... Wait, actually, sorry. Next time on the show, it says The Last Boy Scout on the paper oh, here. Sorry. So no, does that mean we're tired. just going to talk about The Last Boy <laughs> yes, Scout? Yes, we're doing so it again every week. <laughs> this is now a Last Boy Scout. More God Milo pump. impressions, yeah. more, more profanity. Yeah. More fuck faces, <laughs> more assholes. <laughs>
no, uh, that was uh, that, that was an error. It's been a long week. Um, the next movie we're doing is Hard Boiled, oh. John Woo's 1992 masterpiece. Masterpiece. Yeah. I, so. I almost just said, where are you with John Woo? But I desperately need this recording to end. So yeah. I'm not going to ask you that question. Let's leave it there. Yeah, that's fair. Come that's and join fair. us next week. Okay. Uh, I'm Liam Billingham. I'm Philip Gawthorne. We will be back next time with some new FBI guys. Bye-bye. Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast hosted and written by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Please rate, review, and subscribe and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Suki Chu and the whole team at Sugar23. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.